Well, Happy New Year. Yeah, it is. It's the first Sabbath of the year, the first of uh, perhaps many. We'll see, you know. Depends on when Jesus comes back, I suppose, doesn't it? <laughs> I'd love to just do a community poll as we start. And I won't ask you to share, so don't stress. But just to raise your hand, how many of you, by showing of hands, have made at least one New Year's resolution? Oh, come on, raise them high. You've got to raise them high if you're going to commit to these things. All right, yeah. Okay. Did you know that statistically, less than 10% of people keep their New Year's resolutions? So it was going to be an even smaller number than that by the end of the year. Hopefully, you'll still be one of the ones who kept your hands up. Now, the rest of you, maybe you're like me and New Year's resolutions are kind of like not your favorite thing in the world, but... Um, this week, Katie and I decided that we would do, this is, a, this is called community accountability. Are you ready for this? So we decided not a New Year's resolution, just a January resolution, which is about as far as most people get anyway. So we thought we'd just <laughs> jump the hurdle. We decided we'd do no desserts. And this week, I was like, I was working in the office and I thought to myself, man, I'm really hungry. I need a muesli bar. And I started eating this muesli bar. I got halfway through and realized this thing's half chocolate. This has got to count as dessert. And so I went and confessed my, my sin to my wife, and she was very forgiving. <laughs> New Year's is an interesting time of year, is it not? For some people, New Year's is a time of year where it's exciting, it's full of possibilities, you're thinking about all of the visions and the dreams and the challenges ahead that you're excited to take over, and I'm not going to ask you to share, raise your hand if you're in one of these two categories but for many others, a new year is just a reminder of unresolved conflicts from last year. Sometimes a new year brings forward challenges and regrets of things that weren't completed. Sometimes a new year for some is, is really exciting and positive and it's all about vision and dreams and for others it's a lot about regrets. And I don't know where you find yourself at the beginning of this year in one of those two categories or somewhere in between but we're in the middle of a series about prayer called Dear God, Praying Prayers of Blessings. And today, I wanna look at a very short prayer that I personally believe is the most important prayer that was ever prayed by human lips. Dear God, not my will but yours be done. And I think that there are some things in this prayer that will be insightful for us as we look at this year ahead no matter where you're sitting, whether you're excited about the year, whether you're nervous, you've got fear and trepidation, or you're stoked about all of the new things that are coming, I think there's something to take from this prayer that will be a blessing for our lives. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to the first book of the New Testament, to the Gospel of Matthew. So Matthew, again, is the first book of the New Testament. We're gonna be turning to chapter 26 and we're going to look at verse 36 through 44. In Matthew chapter 26 from 36 to 44, we encounter perhaps not the, the typical New Year's sermon scene, but I think it's a great place to start the year. In the scene, Jesus has just arrived in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. It's the last night before his crucifixion. And here we enter this scene and there's an incredible 
series of prayers that takes place. Lord, as we open your word, I just want to pray again that you'd speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting in verse 36, it says this. Then Jesus came with them, his disciples, to a place called Gethsemane, or the place of pressing, where they would crush grapes to squeeze the oil out of them. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And then he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and their names were? James and John. So Peter, James, and John have come a little bit further from the other disciples. And it says, Jesus began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Verse 38, then he said to them, my soul, and the word in the Greek is pesuche, where we get psyche from, right? The inner depth of your mind, the inner person, if you will, the the depths of who you are. He says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. How sorrowful? Even to death. This is what he communicates to his disciples. He says this, and they can see it on his face. They've never seen Jesus like this before. Three and a half years, they've never seen this before. He says, stay here and watch with me. Now, this was a familiar place. They'd spent many times coming to this garden. They'd seen him spend whole nights in prayer. This was not an unfamiliar scene in that way, but the experience that Jesus was undergoing was something that had never taken place in human history and never will take place again in human history. Verse 39, it says, he went a little further. So you've got these eight disciples because Judas had already left. And then you come a little bit further, you've got three disciples close by and then Jesus goes just a little bit further within earshot, within sight. And it says that he fell on his face and he prayed. And this was his prayer. He says, oh my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now for those who may not be familiar with the term, when he says take this cup from me, he's talking about a difficulty, a trial that he's undergoing. And little flash forward for when we study Revelation later this year, that cup was described in Revelation 14, verse 10 and 11, where it talks about the wrath of God against sin. And what Jesus is talking about here is he's talking about this cup that's before him, this trial that's coming where he is going to receive the burden of every sin that has ever been committed by the human race in his person. The guilt and shame of every misdeed in human history is about to be laid upon the Son of God. You ever felt burdened by the shame of your sins? That's a crushing feeling, is it not? And that's just me, my own sins, you, your own sins. Jesus is about to take it for everyone. And his prayer is incredibly insightful. We'll comment on it in a moment. Let's continue reading. Verse 40, then he came to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Like of all the times that you need somebody to have your back, you say, hey, just stay right here and watch with me. Pray with me. Pray for me. I've spent whole nights praying for you. Can you just do this for me? Of all the times when Jesus needed someone to have his back, was it not this? And all of them were asleep. 
he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, who said, I'll always be with you. I'll never deny you. He says to Peter, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came again and found them asleep, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. I think this prayer is incredibly insightful for us as we look at a new year, as we look at how to walk through this life that we're navigating. And there's basically three, three divisions of this prayer that I just wanna look at briefly and draw it in. The way that he starts this prayer is incredibly powerful. How does he address God in this passage? I couldn't hear, that wasn't a rhetorical question, sorry. Oh, my father. He's not saying your father this time, right? There's many times where he talks to the disciples, he says your father in heaven, right? The Jews didn't commonly refer to God as father. This was an interesting term. But Jesus here is not praying your father. He's not praying our father. He's praying my father. He's in a moment of desperation. And he calls on God in a very powerful and personal way in Mark 14, 36, which we'll look at in a moment, it actually uses the term Abba, which is an Aramaic term, and it was a very close, tender term of endearment between a child and their father. Abba, Father. It's a term of endearment, a term of closeness, it's a term of, of dependence. He's calling on God as the one who is closest to him, the one who knows him, and he's calling on him from that place of closeness and desire. This word, Abba, only appears three times in the whole of the New Testament. And I wanna look at those three and see if we can learn something insightful for ourselves about this prayer and what application it might have in our lives. In Mark 14, 36, we've just read this in the Matthew account, but in Mark's version, he prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Paul says in Romans 8, 15, he says, starting in verse 14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the what? The sons of God or the children of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage, again, to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. The third place where this word appears is in Galatians 4, 6, and Paul writes here, and he says, and because you are, present tense, sons, children, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. 
The first thing I want us to take away from this prayer is this. Jesus taught us to pray our Father because he went through the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed to his Father. We can pray our Father in heaven because Jesus prayed my Father in heaven and endured the cross, endured the suffering that we deserve that he took for us. Because of what Jesus has done, because of Jesus' close connection with the Father through his life and ministry, death and resurrection, he invites us to come into that same relationship, that same way to connect to God as a father, not just as God on high, supreme authority above everything else, which he is, but to come in closely like you would to your father. There were times when I was a kid where you'd fall down and you skin your knee, and what's the first thing you wanna do? You wanna go run to whichever parent is the one who gives you the most consolation, right? You wanna go get into the arms of the one who makes you feel safe, the one who makes you feel secure. And the question that I have for us from this point, excuse me, is are we relating to God that way? Are we praying to God as our Father, knowing that through what Christ has accomplished for you and for me, we have access to him like Jesus had access to him? Is that powerful? How do we relate to God? Are we seeking to have that close, parent-child kind of relationship? Or is he just the vending machine? Or is he just the authoritarian at the top that you're trying to appease? How do you relate to God? Because Jesus instructs us to pray like he prayed, to come together closely and to establish a relationship like that. The next part of the prayer I think is really interesting too. So point number one, we need to pray our father like Jesus prayed my father. Point number two, in the next part of his prayer, he says, oh my father, if it be possible, take this what? Take this cup. How many of you have experienced at some point in your life, whether in the past or now, some trial that was very difficult that you wish you didn't have to go through? If you didn't raise your hand, man, I don't know who you are and what you're doing in your life, but uh, you gotta come teach me some things, right? But really, right, like how many of us have suffered, right? We can look around and say, oh, but other people suffered more than us, and that's true. But that doesn't negate our suffering, does it? The reality is that everybody has to go through things in life that are uncomfortable, that are painful, that were not designed to be a part of your life. And I love what Jesus is doing here. I want you to think about this for a moment. Think about what Jesus, the Son of God, is saying when he comes to the Garden of Gethsemane and the sins of humanity are being laid upon his soul and for the first time in his experience eternally, he is feeling shut out from the presence of God. He feels the barrier of sin between man and God. He feels the darkness and the shame that he has never encompassed before. Right? He's in that moment and what does he pray? He says, please God, if there's another way, take it. This is too hard. This difficulty that I'm about to face, I don't want to face. Have you ever thought about Jesus that way? Jesus, strong and kind, the Lion of Judah, right there in the Garden of Gethsemane, on his knees with his disciples snoozing in the background, praying, please God, I don't wanna do this. Is that a mind-blowing concept? He's totally honest with his experience, 
and he communicates it totally honestly with the Father. He's totally vulnerable. He does not have it together, does he? Not the way that we might think. This kind of honesty is only born out of a trusting relationship, and guess what? Trust takes time, does it not? This is evidence to me that Jesus in his humanity had developed an experiential relationship where he came to depend closely on God as a child does depend on their parent for sustenance, for shelter, for security, for emotional strength. And Jesus has experienced that through 33 and a half approximate years of life as a human being, experiencing it like we do and close to God in that way. And I love this. Because of that relationship, there's trust, and he's in a place where he can be totally honest with God about that experience. Are you in a place where your prayer life can look like that? Because you can have that. I guarantee it. A number of years ago, I was experiencing some real difficulties with my mental health. And I tell you what, I've seldom prayed on more honest prayers than those times alone, talking to God about the struggles. God already knows what's going on in your heart. He knows what's going on in your life. He knows what's going on in your head. Why not take some time to go alone with him and verbalize it? Jesus prays, take this cup. It's okay to come to God and to say, I can't do this. It's too hard. It's okay to come to God with the burdens that you bear and say, this is too much, I don't know how to handle this. You don't have to have a stiff upper lip and be able to take it. Because the reality is, we all reach a breaking point, don't we? And we can come to God honestly and vulnerably with those things. I keep reaching for this book, it looks probably really strange, but I forgot I have the quote up on the screen. So let me read to you a quote. This is from one of my favorite books. It's called Desire of Ages by one of the founders of the Adventist Church, Ellen White which is what this book was, that's why I kept reaching for it. I don't know if you've read this book. I didn't read this book until a few years ago, and I tell you what, it's one of the most powerful books I've ever read outside of scripture. And um, if you haven't read it, I'd encourage you to make 2023 the year that you read this book. Check this quote out. It says, turning away, Jesus sought again his retreat, and he fell prostrate on the ground, Overcome by the horror of a great darkness, the humanity of the Son of God trembled in that trying hour. He prayed not now for his disciples. Jesus had prayed for his disciples night after night, day after day, again and again, over and over, that they might not fail, that they might not fall, that they might not stumble. But he's not praying for them in this moment. Who's he praying for? He was not praying now for his disciples that their faith might not fail, but for his own tempted. Did you read that word? What was that word? Tempted. Agonized soul. It's a bit of a flip on the head to think about the Son of God tempted in this scene, isn't it? But that's exactly what's going on. Tempted about what? Check this out. The awful moment had come, that moment which was to decide the destiny of the world, the fate of of humanity, of you and me, trembled in the balance. Christ might even now refuse to drink the cup apportioned to guilty man. The battle was not won yet, was it? Jesus was still there, living as a human being, in the moment, and he at any given point in time could have said, this is too much, I'm done. 
I bow out, I give up, I'm going back to heaven, I'm out. Your fate and mine were trembling in the balance in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was not yet too late for Jesus to say, I'm done. He might wipe the bloody sweat from his brow and he might leave man to perish in his own iniquity, his own sin, his own wrongdoing. He might say, let the transgressor or the person who's done the wrong receive the penalty of his sins and I will go back to my father. Will the son of God drink the bitter cup of humiliation and agony? Will the innocent suffer the consequences of the curse of sin to save the guilty? Have you ever thought about that? At this point in the story, Jesus could have said, I'm done, I'm out, and then there would be zero hope for you and for me. It's over. Sometimes I think if you've grown up in a Christian context or you've been in the church for a long time, it can become so normal to talk about this story that we think, oh, it was all guaranteed. Success was, like, there was no way that Jesus could ever have given up. But Jesus was just as free as you and me to make a choice in that moment, and he could have said no. And to me, that actually makes the sacrifice that he made even greater. Because if there's a chance of failure, then the sacrifice and the risk is real. And God was willing to risk everything for you and for me. We can't even begin to understand what Jesus went through in the garden. He's not even at the cross, right? This is in the garden. This is the night before. But here is where he's starting to experience the reality of the guilt of sin for humanity. What will Jesus do? He's already communicated to the Father. He said, hey, If there's another way to do this whole thing, I'd choose that option. Can we do plan B? I'll take plan C or D. Any chance on that? Silence. Total silence. There's no response from God. So he goes away. He looks for some support from his disciples. No chance. So he goes back and he prays it again. Goes back, nothing. So he goes and he prays it again three times. And then he says these words at the end of that prayer. If it's possible, Father, take this cup of suffering away from me. Take away the challenges that I'm about to face. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And in that moment, the humanity of Jesus is shrinking from this moment. But he makes a decision in that moment. And I love the way that it continues in that quote. I'll just read it from there says the words fall tremblingly pale, sorry, from the pale lips of Jesus. Oh, my Father, if this cup may not pass from me except that I drink it, thy will be done. If there's no other way to do this thing, then I'll do it. If there's no easier option, then I'll take this one. Three times he uttered that prayer. Three times has humanity shrunk from the last crowning sacrifice but now the history of the human race comes up before the, war, before the world's redeemer. He sees that the transgressors of the law or those who break the laws of God, if left to themselves, must perish. He sees the helplessness of man. He sees the power of sin. The woes and lamentations of a doomed world rise before him. He beholds its impending fate and his decision is made. He will save man at any cost to himself. He accepts his baptism of blood 
that through him perishing millions like you and me may gain everlasting life. He has left the courts of heaven where all is purity, happiness, and glory to save the one lost sheep, the one world that has fallen by transgression, and he will not turn from his mission. He will become the propitiation of a race that has willed to sin. Man, if that's not a picture of my life, I don't know what is. The one who has willed to sin, chosen willingly to walk against God and his plans and his designs, and yet Jesus did that for me. His prayer now breathes only submission. If this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, your will be done. Jesus' endurance through this trial is the only reason you and I have any hope in the world. If Jesus had not undergone the suffering that he didn't want to go through, if he had not experienced the trial that he went through, you and I would have zero hope for humanity, zero hope for eternity, zero hope for redemption. It's a lost cause. But because Jesus chose to go through the suffering, because he chose to endure, you and I have life. Hallelujah. Like, I don't know if this is hitting anybody like it's hitting me, but as I've been thinking about this this week, it's just, man, what else could matter (laughs) more than this? Everything else comes into perspective when we look at the cross of Christ, when we look at the sacrifice that Jesus has made eternally. And I want you to think about this. Jesus' sacrifice is permanent. It's eternal. Jesus is forever limited to a glorified human body. Jesus has sacrificed like omnipresence, if you will. Do you ever think about that? Like what Jesus has done has permanent cost. Permanent cost to him, to the Godhead. Father, Son, and Spirit always together in total communion for all of eternity past, torn asunder at the cross. Permanent. Is that mind-blowing? Jesus is the only one in eternity who will still have scars. You and I, no more glasses, hallelujah, right? No more evidence of stupid decisions in your life. But Jesus will forever have scars in his hands and in his side. The only reminder of sin. Is that powerful? What a permanent sacrifice because God loves you and he loves me that much. So what impact should this have on us? He prays, Abba, Father, we should be close and we should be seeking for a relationship with Jesus and with God himself the way that Jesus sought it and we can. We can have that close, familial relationship with God. Number two, we can be vulnerable and honest with God totally about every issue, every burden. And sometimes the answer will be, yes, I'll remove that from you. But sometimes there will be some things that we have to undergo. And what God is looking for us to do is to seek for his will above all else. Because guess what? The will of God for your life is greater and bigger and better than anything you will ever dream up for yourself. Everything you think is the best thing for your life pales in comparison to the plans that Jesus has for you. And so as we go into 2023... I think we're called as followers of Jesus, if that's what you are, to 
Seek to know and to surrender to his will. But how do we do this? This is my last point. How do we do this? Like the master, so the disciple. Right? Like father, like son. You've heard that before, I'm sure. As I was studying this this week, it reminded me of one other, one other passage that was just, it just struck me. How many times did Jesus pray this prayer? Oh, come on, we just read it. You can do better than that. Three times. Can you think of anybody else who prayed that God would take something away three times? Paul, I heard somebody say it. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul writes this very interesting thing. He writes about an experience that he had and it parallels Jesus' experience. Just let's refresh that experience we just read about Jesus. Luke's account says, Jesus prayed, Father, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground, right? Well, check out Paul's experience. Paul says this. He says, and lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations that were given to him. He says, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me or to humble me. Lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord how many times? Three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, God spoke to Paul in response to his prayer to take this cup from me. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses. For whose sake? For Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Because when I am weak, I depend on Jesus. And his strength is made perfect in me. And look at this comparison. So Jesus says, take this cup. Paul says, remove this thorn of the flesh. Jesus prays three times, begging God if there's another way. Paul begs God three times if there's another way. And messenger is sent to strengthen Jesus for the trial. A message is given to Paul to strengthen him for the trial. And by the grace of God, Jesus endures the suffering. And by the grace of God, Paul endures the suffering. And ultimately, Jesus receives the name that is above all names, and he achieves the redemption of humanity. And Paul, through undergoing the suffering, through enduring through the trial, through relying on Jesus and saying, I could have opted out, but I'm going to trust your will, and I'm going to stick to, I'm going to stay true to the course. He will receive, at the second coming, the crown of glory, with a star in there for every person who he's Influence for salvation. That's a pretty starry crown considering he wrote half the New Testament and most of us wouldn't know who Jesus was without Paul. Right? And he'll take that crown and he'll cast it at the feet of Jesus saying to you be the glory. And what I love about this is simple. Paul is set forth as an example to us because he just followed Jesus' example. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. So how does this all have application in our life then? 
What are we supposed to do with this idea of prayer like Jesus prayed here? Oh, my Father, take this cup if it's possible. Otherwise, let me do your will. Just let me do your will. How do we do that? Because I don't know what the things are in your life this year that you've got coming up, and you may have you know, lots of smooth sailing and beautiful things, but you may have some big challenges that are looming. But either way, the reality is we should be seeking to know and understand God's will for our life. Because let me tell you, God's will for your life is bigger and better than anything you could dream up for yours. But it may require that you go through some difficult times. And let me tell you, the best things in my life have always come with trial, have always come with suffering. There's always difficulty in the best things, is there not? Tell you what, that beautiful little girl that I was holding here before, my little daughter, man, my wife went through some pretty heavy stuff to make her come out. There was a lot of trial and suffering that day. But you don't get the baby without the trial, do you? You don't get the glory without the suffering, right? What are the things in your life that God is calling you to where you know what God's will is, but it might require a little bit of difficulty on the road? Because really the ultimate question about all of those things is am I gonna surrender and allow God to do his work and his will so I can walk through or am I gonna choose my own thing, which I can tell you from my own personal experience, it's pretty trash. (laughs) Do it your own way and suffer and have no benefits or follow Jesus and walk into the greatest wonders that you could ever imagine. How do we do it? In Hebrews, it says this. It says, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, everything that burdens you and holds you back from the plan that God has for your life, from surrendering to Jesus and walking with him every day, every weight, and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? How are we gonna do it, Paul? What are we supposed to do? Look unto Jesus. Look unto Jesus. Look at that scene in Gethsemane. Look what he did. Look at that scene on the cross of Calvary. Look what he has done. He gave up everything for you. He endured for you. And if we look to Jesus, we seek for the spirit, this is how we endure. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus says, if anyone will follow me, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. But I want you to think about that. Through the cross, Jesus achieved the greatest thing that has ever been achieved, the redemption of the human race. On the other side of that cross is a crown of glory. On the other side of that cross is redemption. On the other side of that cross is restoration, reunion, and seeing the face of God with no barrier, forever freed from the burden of sin in your life. Let me read one more passage to you and I'll invite the the band back up. We'll close here. Paul said this in Philippians chapter four. And you may have heard this before. I, I have a feeling that For many, this will be a familiar passage. 
<laughs> Let me tell you a funny story while they're coming up. A number of years ago, I decided um, I was going to try and do some, like, some running. Any runners out there? Yeah, you guys are all like me, not runners. <laughs> I thought, man, I'm going to run. I can't remember what it was. I think it was like a six-minute mile. It's, not, it's nothing too fancy or flash, but for me, that was a huge, it was a huge thing. And I was like, this is going to be this is going to be intense. And I can remember, I was like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I know that sounds corny, but that's exactly what I was doing. And I got through and I was like running and I was trying to do this thing every day and my knees hurt. Everything hurts. It's all pain and suffering. But sometimes we kind of like, we look at that statement, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we use it as like, it's the mantra to just go out and do whatever I want to do. And we think, man, that's the thing. But that's not actually the context of what Paul's saying when he writes that. He's not like Tony Robbins giving a motivational speech when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When Paul wrote this to the Philippian church, he was writing from a prison cell. And Roman prisons are a little bit worse than prisons today, and I'm telling you, prison today is not, not a great place to be. But it was even worse in the Roman times. You sit there with your own filth, and everybody else's filth running through, underground, right? Sitting here in this prison cell, not knowing where you, when you're going, and the justice system there looks like you wait in here until you either get put to death or you get set free. That's your options, right? He's awaiting penalty. And from that prison cell, he has the audacity to write this. He says, not that I speak in regard to need. By the way, they don't feed you in a Roman prison. You have to have friends who supply you. There's no, there's no provision. If, if nobody comes to support you in the prison, you die of starvation. He says, I don't, uh, I'm not speaking about having anything in regard to need. I don't need anything. He says, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Here I am, riding from a Roman prison. And I know what the secret of contentedness is. I have it. I'm content right here, right now. He says, I know how to be abased or to be brought low. I know how to abound or to be put up on high. I know what it is to be poor. I know what it is to be rich. I know what it is to have nothing. I know what it is to have everything. He says, I'm content in everything, in every situation. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. All things. Is that what you would write or I would write from a prison cell in Rome in the first century? That's bold. He says, look, man, if I know that I'm in the center of God's will for my life, it doesn't matter if it's looking good today or looking bad today. I can get through any and every situation because Jesus is with me. I can get through any and every situation because Jesus is with me. We're gonna sing a song and when we come back from that song, I'm just I'm gonna ask you a couple of questions to respond to what we've shared today. But I want you to just think about that as we, as we sing this song. This year, 2023, will your prayer be, oh my father, here's the real circumstance, here's the real situation, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, and I want to know your will 
because I wanna do your will in my life this year. I wanna follow you whether it means walking on the mountaintop or through the valley. I wanna go where you call me this year.